Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Julia Clare. How are you doing, Julia? Oh, very much the same <laughs> week to week now. It's not it's not different. How are you, Kate? Pretty good. I mean, yeah, I saw uh, <laughs> I saw COVID cases in New York are up again, which like, I don't know, I was kind of expecting. How has it been in your job? Um, it's been it's actually been pretty OK because there aren't that many students on campus and there was a lot of effort made maybe like a month before classes started to or two months before classes started even um to prep the building for students to re-enter so it's been like I never feel cramped I never feel um yeah I just I never feel like I'm super in danger uh but I'm I am not surprised that cases are are going up again we have a I think it was a three percent positive test rate which is up from one percent um and i don't know i if people have, i mean everybody's antsy period but i think people are just like i don't know I, i've just been like the different places that i've been it just seems like more people are out and people are kind of like less concerned with like being very strict about social distancing yeah it's i'm definitely like trying to like hunker down for winter i'm trying to like figure out ways that i'm gonna spend time i'm like am i gonna finally get into crafting i don't know because it's like i've been like you know drinking with uh masks on uh on you know socially distanced uh stew pangs this summer which has actually been kind of cool it's kind of been yeah. sort of neat, neat to like socialize with people outside of like establishments where you have to pay uh to like be there and stuff it's been it's been nice to just be like oh you want to go to the park you know but uh i don't know i don't know if new yorkers are like hardcore enough that we'll just like keep going to the park in the snow part of me thinks that we will you know i hope so but i also do i want to say that i do believe that this is the time that you will get really into crafting yeah and i i, I did like decorate my whole uh like I decorated my living room and then when I was done, like my roommates were like, this looks like midsummer. This looks like a, some <laughs> kind of like cult situation, which I didn't mean to, but there was all these like tree branches and like moon. Oh, here's another thing I've been getting into, uh, Halloween movies, like horror movies, which actually I feel like is like a kind of a nice escape. Like that's the only kind of movie I've really been able to enjoy during the pandemic. Because that makes sense. It, yeah. Cause it's like, Oh, at least there's not a murderer chasing after me right now, which is relaxing. That is, it's peaceful. We love that. Yeah yeah that's nice so, no it's it's uh it's <laughs> just relaxing by watching slasher films um we love that you know the yeah. more the more gore the better um huh, so you know another the hits just keep on coming another tough week in news uh but we want to we want to talk uh at the top of the show we want to talk about uh prop 22 yeah, I so I don't live in California anymore, but I did live in California for a while. And during some of the time I lived there, I drove rideshare uh, for a while. I drove for like Lyft and Uber when I was 
uh, kind of starting out in comedy. And um, so basically, uh, a little while ago, California passed this bill called uh, AB5, which basically defined what is an independent contractor and what's an employee and made it so that rideshare companies like Lyft and Uber, as well as like DoorDash, Instacart, um, these like rideshare delivery services would have to classify their employees as employees. Um, and they need to stop misclassifying them as independent contractors. So what Uber and Lyft did and these other companies, uh, but especially the rideshare ones, they threatened a capital strike. They're like, okay, we're leaving, we're ceasing our operations in the state. Uh, but now what they're doing is they've written a ballot proposition, Prop 22, uh, that basically would give them the right to permanently misclassify their uh, drivers as independent contractors, exempting them from labor protections, the ability to unionize, uh, you know, Medicare, Social Security, all the things that payroll taxes cover. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really disgusting. They're spending like, um, you know, I think they've spent like $100 million on the campaign so far. Uh, when you open your Uber app, you have to agree to vote yes on 22 in California to even hail a ride. What um, the fuck? Yeah, Ugh. it's fucked up. They're, they're advertising. They've hired like 18 uh, really expensive consulting firms. Um, there have been reports uh, of some of these consulting firms harassing individual internet users for expressing like, um, you know, that you shouldn't vote on 22. Uh, Megan Day wrote a great piece about it for Jacobin, but there was mm. a, 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 like a labor law professor who was talking about why people should vote no on 22. And she was doxxed probably by these companies or people working for them. Um, and, uh, or at least at the, at the kind of promotion um, of these consulting firms on like the kind of yes on 22 Twitter account. They like screenshotted her and, you know, blew up her tweet. Uh, then like she ended up on like right wing websites, her home address was published. And, you know, they're just trying to like make the life a living hell uh, for people who, you know, don't support this uh, egregious abuse of employees and you know this is this is nothing new for these companies like what people are making working for these companies is often less than minimum wage um no health insurance uh you know most of the people who work for these companies um are are actually, uh, you know, this they're relying on it for their income. This is not really a thing like they're saying, where people are, you know, just doing this to earn extra cash. It is largely uh, low income and black and brown workforce. And uh, it's just incredibly exploitative. And what they're doing with this campaign, yes, on 22, is it's just really disgusting because, you know, I don't know how the vote is going to go. I think that, you know, a lot of people in California may end up voting for it because, you know, if it fails, like there's the possibility that, you know, prices are going to go up, which like they probably should, you know, like it's yeah, important they to, should. to pay people and fairly. They yeah. should go up here. I mean, I don't, I don't know if they should. <laughs> it's very expensive to do anything here. But um, yeah, no, they absolutely should go 
if you can't pay your workers fairly, your business doesn't have legs. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, obviously the business model of these companies, like it, it, the only reason that it works is because they have been able to, uh, you know, misclassify the people who work for them. And, totally. you know, they, they always claim like, oh, we're just a tech company. You know, we don't employ, <sighs> you know, like a we don't we don't employ drivers we're just everyone gets to be their own boss and people are like pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and you know like it's just um it's really fucked up because i think that uh it's just um to have a company writing their own legislation that exempts them from following all labor laws it would be horrible in itself but it would also be horrible precedent and one thing about this is if this bill passes, um, then that means that it would require seven eighths of the legislature in California to amend it. So basically it's permanent if it does pass. Um, oh, good. you know, yeah, but I mean, it's, I'm just thinking about, you know, all the kind of like <laughs> progressive era reforms of like minimum wage and, you know, overtime and just <laughs> like just everything, you know, let alone like, you know, Obamacare, having, you know, employees, employers who employ a large workforce have to uh, ensure their employees, like, to, to just have, like, a complete, um, a complete workaround, you know, permanently enshrined in law uh, would be, would be very disgusting. Mm. And I really, really would encourage anyone who listens to our podcast to, uh, vote no on prop 22 in california um and uh yeah and also fuck lyft and uber and postmates and i think actually i think they're these companies are they're consolidating i think that uber eats bought postmates and i think that doordash or i don't know I, i'm not sure but but these companies are uh consolidating and uh let me see so oh, hold on one second um we have uh, DoorDash. Uh, DoorDash bought Caviar, and Uber Eats bought Postmates. And um, oh, good, yeah. more. Yeah, DoorDash <laughs> during the more pandemic. One, yeah, someone who worked for them tweeted that uh, they charged their workers as much as forty dollars to buy hand sanitizer Jeez. in the pandemic. It's just this, like, I don't know. It's uh, <laughs> You know, like it's like a fifteen dollar minimum wage. What Democrats, some Democrats, are currently pushing for is bad enough. It's still like that was like you know maybe okay uh, a few decades ago, but I mean, like this basically you know is going to guarantee people this if Prop Twenty Two passes, it's like a way to you know legally pay people like five dollars an hour or something fucking ridiculous. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the fifteen dollar minimum wage was appropriate in 2015 and 2016 like but basically every kind of analysis of what the minimum wage should be if adjusted for inflation would be well well over $20 an hour yeah. um like tw yeah. 23 or something like that um yeah. so yeah this is horrifying i continue my hatred of Silicon Valley in all of its forms and it's Ayn Randian rugged individualism bullshit. Oh, you know what that um, reminds me of? Wow. Did you watch the social dilemma yet? Up to their old tricks. Oh yeah. No. Did you, did you watch the social dilemma yet? Have you seen that? No, I can't. I'm too upset all the time. And I know that I, I know that 
I know that it's going to ruin my life. <laughs> well, the thing about it was like, I, the, so, you know, I wouldn't say that it's like a completely like valueless thing because it does kind of describe like the in intensity of like the, you know, psychological study that they've put in to make these apps more addictive and upsetting. But like the thing is, is it's like it's these Silicon Valley bros and you know, on the one hand, they're like presenting, you know, the information about what they did, but then they're also making all of these like political conclusions that are just pretty ridiculous. Um, maybe I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but you know, they keep talking about how like all of the divisiveness in our culture is related to, you know, social media and stuff. And it's like one, okay, you did that, dude. Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's like a little bit like if the vow were like, you know, narrated by like Keith Rainier or something, but two, it's like, you know, the, most of the divisiveness in our culture is coming from, uh, I would say, the extreme inequality. It's not like if social media were shut down tomorrow, people would just be like, oh, we're all in a great situation here, you know? Right. I think social media has, like, really exacerbated existing tensions, to put it yes. extremely mildly. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I hate Facebook. I think it's, like, as immoral a company as Amazon. Um Oh, and yeah, no, these guys are all terrible. Yeah, that's, but uh, I think but what, I, I need to download my pictures and then I'll, I haven't used my Facebook in months. It's yeah. Just up, so I think I'm going to delete it, permanent delete it soon. Oh, I know. Like, it's just, I don't know. Facebook is terrible. I mean, it's, you know, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism, but Facebook is kind of a uniquely terrible corporation but so are all the ones that we just mentioned so i don't know maybe it's, uh, it's true good comp they're in good company with yeah, all the other so, terrible corporations um yes yeah, so they're all pretty disgusting so i i don't want to leave it at just uh tech bros are bad we want to make sure that we're giving some equal time to um some the ladies really bad women as well uh let's jump in what do you have oh my god <laughs> Um, well, Amy Coney Barrett, the girl, the girl boss herself, uh, she has officially been nominated to the Supreme Court to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who passed away, um, as we all know. And um, a lot of people are likening this nomination to when Clarence Thomas was nominated to replace Thurgood Marshall. Um, basically someone of the same demographic to undo all the things that that person did. Um, so Amy Coney Barrett has actually only been a federal judge for three years. Um, yeah. Trump nominated, Trump, Trump appointed her, uh, and she was confirmed by the Senate in, uh, 2017. And she's been on the seventh circuit court of appeals since then. She does pass the rigorous litmus test for all of these nominees. She's extremely anti-choice. Um, in her time on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, she's already ruled on three different cases uh, regarding abortion access, and she voted in all three to restrict um, abortion access or make it more difficult to obtain an abortion. She also has ruled on Title IX. She has made it easier for um, college, male college students accused of sexual assault to appeal their case. Um, she has voted that she has ruled that um, felons should be able to purchase firearms, but should not be able to vote. 
<laughs> you know what I always wonder about that? These people who don't want felons to vote. I mean, obviously it's a way of consolidating Republican power, but like, mm-hmm. let's just kind of like, you know, take their argument at a uh, at face value. You know that like it's you know dangerous to have like felons vote, and I'm just like wondering like you know what what do these people picture that like you know that the, all these felons are gonna like organize around you know like a pro felony. <laughs> just like Um, felonies are good now pro felony myself (laughs) i hope that that's the case um yeah so i think the thing to know about amy coney amy coney barrett is that she is as kind of ardent and staunch on gun rights as she is on being anti-choice and uh she is catholic she but she also belongs to this like interdenominational charismatic christian parachurch yeah which dude is anybody, a thing i didn't even know existed and i have some pretty deep ties to christianity <laughs> yeah i mean like the, I, um, I don't and it's called people of praise wait i thought she was not like, a member of it's uh, people not of praise. affiliated with the catholic church at like the catholic church will not affiliate them um and yeah, it's this like small, again, interdenominational Christian community that is just hyper conservative. Um, the group supports the gender role of husbands having authority over their wives. <sighs> and, you know, of course, this is just, I mean, she clerked for Scalia. We knew she was going to be conservative, but she is like, She's really a like a caricature, and I. The more I learn about her, the more afraid I am. Yeah, no, she's absolutely horrible. I, you know, obviously, like, there's, you know, there's a lot of. I I'm an atheist, but you know, there are a lot of people who uh are like you know practicing a religion that you know are in politics, and you know, some of them are you know, as, as good as a a politician can be. Like, it's not, it's like, I think I see all of these conservatives going on and on about like, Oh, you're anti-Catholic. It's like, no, liberals are not anti-Catholic. Like Joe Biden is Catholic. I'm anti Joe Biden, but it's not because of his religion, but you know, like this, this stuff really does come out in her rulings. And it's not just that it's, you know, super pro corporation, anti-worker, um, Mm -hmm. you know, just, it'll just be a, a, a real kind of further consolidation, uh, of right-wing power you know probably for generations to come and you know i definitely think that it's worth people like getting in the streets to try to stop this but i also don't think uh that it's super likely that it will be stopped i don't i don't really think that um it's you know it's it's just it's not likely to stop this and to me what makes the most sense as a push at this point beyond even court packing which i do think is a good idea uh is you know to really like try to diminish the power of the supreme court because kind of looking at the history of the supreme court this week like there's really only been like one period where the supreme court was kind of often ruling in in favor of uh you know giving giving power to the vulnerable uh to the marginalized, um, to people whose rights are regularly threatened by the state. That was the Warren court, but you know, it's just, it was, it's such a, 
it's such a narrow period of time and I understand why people think the court is important like thinking about these civil rights victories you know even recently like with same-sex marriage but like the the amount of times that the court has ruled in favor of more oppression has just dramatically outnumbered the times that they haven't like over the entire history and so i think like the push at this point is finding ways to reduce the power of the court give more power to congress and elect a much better congress and you know it's just uh and abolish the senate um yeah i mean like it's one of those yeah yeah yeah, it's, um, it's one of those institutions like the Senate that's just always kind of going to make things less democratic. Right. And I mean, the 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 cries of anti-Catholicism or like prejudice against Catholicism are uh, just so fucking funny for a number of reasons. One of which is most of those people crying anti-Catholic are evangelicals. Yeah. Um, who are who anti-Catholic. don't even believe that Catholics are real Christians. Yeah. So because they, they worship the Virgin Roe Mary torn to shreds and also the supreme court is like the most catholic arm of our it's i mean it's right currently we have five catholics on the court out of nine amy coney barrett would be number six two-thirds of the court is would be catholic can i can i tell you something have you ever seen the the canadian supreme court outfit jake showed this to me the other day they dress like santa claus they all dress like Santa. And I feel like if you're going to take my rights away, you have to at least be dressed like Santa Claus to do it. We should require I, that of her. I completely agree. You want to know what take has pissed me off the most? I've seen it a few times this week and uh, it's really been making me mad. Uh, you know, both like Ross Duthit, who is the perennial reply guy of the week, but then there was also this Politico piece and uh, a few other people, you know, kind of been saying this online or whatever that like amy coney barrett uh is emblematic of a new kind of more pro-family conservative feminism because like you know just to kind of outline this argument for a second because she is anti-choice she is pro-family and you know liberal feminists um are you know trying to are actually like disenfranchising women further because you know the we're the we're so obsessed with abortion that we're actually like uh you know contributing to um women not realizing their dreams in the domestic sphere and men being able to shirk their responsibilities of fatherhood should they impregnate someone it's like no dude fuck you like the reason that like people don't have more kids is because like this is a society where it's like impossible to do so unless you're like really rich or you know even if you are there's like the the planet is burning down or whatever and like love to our listeners with kids but it's a really hard and stressful thing to do at this point and you know Props to people who do it, but like I, I don't think that the reason that more people don't has anything to do with the fact that abortion is legal, you know? And plus, you can't really be a feminist and be obsessed with uh, taking women's rights away, you know? Yeah, totally. Uh, I agree. As much as hard as I've tried, uh, they just won't let you be a feminist when you just when you want to take women's rights away. Yeah, you simply so, cannot. Yeah, that's where we are, and what another great week. Yeah, she's absolutely, Amy Coney Barrett is absolutely evil. And I mean, they, you know, this is like just them wanting to, you know, they want like a 
a pretty woman's face to be the face of taking away abortion rights and um you know and guns and all of these other horrible things like they specifically want to be you know it's like it's kind of same purpose as Kellyanne Conway like oh you know you guys said that you supported women but you don't support this one it's just um I don't know I think Roe versus Wade is uh going to go and you know what else is going to go soon is uh ACA there's a yep. Amy Coney oh, Amy Coney Barrett has already ruled against it and the Supreme Court is going to hear another case about it in the next four months so no matter which way they rule on it pretty much strikes down ACA um because uh there's no way that they're basically like even if they even if it was four four you know like even if Amy Coney Barrett like wasn't on the court yet which is super unlikely the lower court's ruling that has already uh, stricken it down would stand and I, I personally i think this is you know it's really bad but i also think it's going to be kind of this, the little silver lining to me is it's going to i think that when we have to start the healthcare debate basically from scratch i i think that our buddy joe biden is definitely going to be surprised that there's not going to be a lot of people in the streets with signs that say that they would only like to pay a thousand dollars a month for their health insurance <laughs> like it's good there's going to be a push for medicare for all which is like totally it's not i'm not saying this is how i'd want that to happen but i'm just trying to find some silver linings in a situation that oft feels pretty hopeless to me totally um you have anything else before we bring on our guest I don't. Uh, it's another, again, another great week <laughs> on the books. Yeah, no, it's like every week. It's just like, fuck, fuck. <laughs> it's just like, like the night that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, my, I was like, what else is going to happen? And then like right after that, there was like an earthquake in Los Angeles. I'm yeah. not one of these like, but you know, we've been building to all this for a while. Okay. But we, you know, there is some hope like we don't want to sound like we're hopeless because uh there are actually some really exciting ways that people can be making a difference uh at this point and one of those is electing really awesome left people to local government like our guest fatima iqbal zubair who is running for state assembly in california and los angeles uh, and she rules. Um, She's yeah, so she awesome. was such a such a cool, um, such a cool candidate. Is endorsed by uh, a bunch of left groups, including the DSA um, in Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, we just had a really really great time talking with her. Just listen to Reply Guys. Welcome back to Reply, guys. We are so excited this week to be joined by Fatima Iqbal Zubair, and she is running for state assembly in California, specifically in the Los Angeles area, and we're just so stoked to have her on the show. Welcome, Fatima. Thank you, Kate, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, I am so excited to to have you on. Um, can we uh, talk for a second just for folks who don't, who may not know exactly what state assembly is like what how does how do the legislative bodies work in, in california and what does a state assembly member do 
Yeah, that's a really great question. And, you know, um, a lot of people, yeah, don't know. And, and, and because our politics isn't really made to be accessible right now, which is why I think candidates like me are running to really inform people of what these, you know, houses of power do and uh, what they can do to get involved. Yeah. So the state assembly, when I always explain it to people, um, I explain it uh, to keep it simple as a Congress for California, right? So up at in Sacramento, which is our capital, we have a house and we have the Senate. Uh, the state house has 80 representatives in it. The state Senate has 40. And of course, the governor is, you know, kind of like our president of the state, the executive branch, uh, Governor Newsom. And um, yes, yeah, so basically state assembly and uh, basically the state assembly with the state Senate, along with the governor, you know, uh, makes the, the legislative body makes the laws. The governor can approve the laws. Right. Um, so very similar to how kind of Congress functions at a federal level. So it's really important to know this because. Literally, we are not only affected by federal laws, we are just as if not more affected by our state laws, our local laws. Um, something, So something else that the state uh, legislature is responsible to do is actually to make our budget every year, our state budget. Um, you know, unlike the federal government, our state can't go in deficit. So it's really important that we you know, balance the budget. And um, to me, it's about uh, thinking about how we can create a more humane moral budget. Um and yeah, so that's a that's a quick summary. Um, one, I guess one thing I would add is that, you know, I'm running for District 64. And just like we talk about, you know, um, redlining and how kind of these districts are drawn. Um, that's, you know, also an issue as we're thinking about how these 80 assembly districts are drawn, right? And where funding is allocated. Um, yeah, so basically, California has 80 assembly districts. And, you know, each district has a representative um, that goes and sits in the state assembly. And what is supposed to happen is that, you know, the representative does um, advocate for the needs of the district, but also, you know, you know, keep in mind that, uh, you know, laws that are proposed and passed um, do affect all of California. Um, that being said, you can bring money to your district, you know, um, um, as well and in certain areas. So. so tell me a little bit about District 64. What's your district like? Yeah, of course. Um, so District 64 is in Southern California. It is actually the fifth lowest median income in all of California. Um, you know, we started our campaign talking about breaking the chains of systemic racism. And after what I tell you, you know, you'll see why. Um, so our district um, contains a quarter of the state's refineries. Um, it contains the largest refinery on the West Coast. It has the highest rate of neighborhood oil drilling in all of LA County. Um, so, and then if you think about, um, an educational, uh, you know, justice and, and the education state of our district, only about 54% of high school degrees and 11.7% of college degrees. When it comes to housing, you know, a lot of our communities have four times the eviction rate, um, of, um, the rest of LA County and, and pay pretty high property taxes, you know, and, um, and now if you look at the makeup of the district in terms of people, it's actually 90% people of color. Um, you know, uh, uh, black, um, um, about 25% black and about, about 65 to 70% um, Latino, so a large immigrant population. So it is, a, it is unfortunately, you know, a picture of systemic racism, right, with all the inequities um, I shared, as well as looking at the makeup uh, of the people of the district. I'm going to go ahead and make myself sound both dumb and privileged here and say okay. that I really didn't know that California had oil refineries. I wasn't aware that there actually is so much drilling going on in California. Yeah. What are these refineries doing? 
Yeah. No, that's a really good question. Um, you know, Kate, because a, a lot of a lot of times we go about our lives and, and we don't know when these unethical things are happening, right? So it's a great question. Um, yeah, so, you know, right now our state, um, and in fact, a lot of our country uh, runs on, um, you know, on non-renewable energy, right? And so what that is, is that it runs on oil and natural gas. Um, so essentially, that's what the role of these refineries, the drilling is, is they're refining oil. They are digging essentially for oil um, because that is what is powering our state. Um, and now, why is this a bad thing? You know, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it sounds great, right? We're getting energy for our state, which is what we need. I mean, California is a fifth largest economy. I mean, why it's, it's bad is, you know, it, it, it leads to climate change. I mean, it causes... You know, it affects uh, the water pipes because naturally we're drilling in the ground and then the waters can get contaminated. Um, it affects our air quality. Um, it affects, you know, then if, you, if those things are affected, it's going to affect our uh, propensity to get diseases, to get cancer, our life expectancy. Um, and it affects climate. So it affects, you know, how how we have rising sea levels. It affects heat waves, you know, that we recently have it. In, in fact, the fires in California, it makes our fires a lot worse. And in fact, our fires are getting worse and worse every year because of this change in our climate. So it's connected to a lot of factors from human, you know, to, to our planet. And how are the constituents in your district impacted by the presence of these refineries? Yeah, yeah, they're highly impacted, you know, I mean, you know, I think, you know, I, I think for me, you know, I always want to be a leader that leads with my heart. And so I'm going to kind of share this lived experience. Um, you know, when I was knocking on doors before the primary, because this this is forever stamped in my mind, um, there, I was knocking doors in Wilmington. So Wilmington is the third largest oil field in the United States. It's in my district. And I came to a home, um, you know, the, the door was slightly ajar, um, you know, I knocked on the door and, and a, a little baby crawled up to the door. Right. And and mind you, next to our house, like maybe one feet away was drilling, you know, this active drill that was was uh, drilling that was happening. Oh, my God. And in that moment, you know, it, it just that that one like few seconds, that moment, I realized this child is going to grow up uh, likely with asthma, you know, susceptible to nosebleeds, to getting cancer. Her life expectancy is going to be shorter. Um, and and. That is this. That is the condition of a lot of folks in in my district, particularly in Wilmington. Um, when you live near these drilling sites, I mean, your water is affected, your air is affected. I, I mean, there are kids, um, you know, that pass out because of the toxicity in the air. There are kids that are getting nosebleeds. The rates of cancer and asthma are some of the highest in the nation and in California. Um, and then when we think about you know places like Compton, Willowbrook, and Watson, there's issues of on clean water, right? Um, now, this isn't maybe directly related to the drilling, um, but it is still environmental racism, right? Because, uh, you know, we have old pipes that aren't changed. Um, you have, if you have toxicity in the soil, right? Lead and arsenic toxicity, it's going to affect the water quality. Um, and then with the larger refineries, you know, which a quarter of which we have in our district, it is greatly affecting our air quality. I mean, they, you know, these refineries are not as regulated as they should be. They're spewing chemicals into the air and they run throughout the night. You know, they, these refineries do not shut down. So just imagine, you know, toxicity being spewed into the air, you know, day in, day out. I mean, in, in communities that are living, you know, like in my district that are living close to this, it is affecting the air quality drastically. I mean, and 
honestly, you know, with with COVID that's happening, if you look at COVID cases where it's more predominant, a huge factor is those that live near this air pollution, um, that live near this toxicity are getting more sick. And naturally, unfortunately, this this tends to be people of color, low-income people of color. And we were talking before the show for a moment about environmental racism. And I guess, how do you see, like, what is what are some of the processes of decision-making that, like, lead to uh, these, like, highly toxic refineries being in areas where a lot of people of color live? How does that play out? Yeah, great question, um, because this is how we change things, right? Figuring out the root of the problem. So, I mean, a big part of it is the special interest money. So the oil companies, the natural gas companies, the tobacco companies, you know, anything that could lead to increased pollution, um, they want to stay in business, right? And the way they stay in business and the, the you know is that they need to keep refining you know they need to, uh, they need to keep doing what they do best right and so they will uh pay out these politicians and what happens and this is it's very simple but this is what happens and it affects people's lives i mean they will vote uh these politicians will then vote absent or no on a lot of environmental bills that you know are proposed in the assembly or the senate and and frankly this is what my opponent has done I mean, he didn't vote yes on a single environmental bill. It's no surprise, right? He is the second biggest corporate acceptor of money. I mean, it's we could literally see, Kate, and it's really sad, but it, we can literally see when a politician gets the money. And if it's right before a certain vote, it affects how they vote. I mean, it's a direct correlation. And it's been happening, happens locally, it happens statewide, it happens nationally. You know, money in politics is a huge issue. And this is how, to answer your question, this happens, right? We have politicians that are trying to get reelected, that are indebted more to their special interests because their primary motive is to get reelected. And I think that's why it's so important, you know, to support movements like ours that are happening, you know, our movements and movements like ours across across the country, because um, it is really affecting policy. Policy impacts people's lives. It affects how long people live. It affects the type of food they eat, the water they drink, you know. So we really need to talk about money in politics. We need to get money out of politics. And there's things that we could actually do at the state level um, you know, to, to do that. And, you know, if we get a chance, I'd love to share that as well. Yeah, absolutely. We love talking about that. What, <laughs> what can we do? What should yeah. we be doing? Right, right. So, um, you know, there's a lot we can do at the state level. You know, we hear, um, we were all saddened to hear Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, her passing away because what that could mean, you know, for the interpretation of, of laws that give us our rights. Um, and one of those, one of those, uh, things that we need to end is Citizens United, right? Um, that is going to happen at the Supreme Court level. But the, the, in the hopeful thing is that there's a lot we can do at the state level. So one thing that I want to do is pass publicly funded elections in the state. You know, LA City Council has public financing to help candidates. I believe in six to one. So that ratio, they support candidates, you know, based on how much you, uh, you raise or per donation. Um, and the state level really has nothing like that. And so it's, it really puts candidates like me who are, you know, only taking clean money at a disadvantage, right? It means we need to spend even more time doing call time and fundraising, you know, finding grassroots donors that fit with our values. We should be supporting, uh, you know, grassroots candidates and, and candidates, frankly, that are closest to the pain. People like my students. I want people like my students to run and win one day, right? First generation college students, people that have been homeless, people that live near environmental racism. And um, 
And so publicly funded elections will give them the support that's needed. Um, something else I want to pass is, is ranked choice voting um, or, a, or a form of proportional representation. You know, our state went to Bernie Sanders. So it's clear that both parties, including the Democratic Party, do not represent the majority of voices, um, you know, um, in the state, at least the establishment as it is. Right. So ranked choice voting, I think, will make a lot more people get involved and, and believe in really our state legislature and our local government. Um, it's actually been passed in local elections in Northern California, um, in in Maine. Um, and something else that we can do to really expand uh, our democracy is expand voting access. So I support, you know, um, allowing those in prison to vote, um, allowing um, 16 year olds, for example, to vote in school board elections, um, making voting a national holiday. You know, um, these are ways we can really get people involved in our government and, you know, really reduce the influence of money. Um, one, one thing I forgot to mention is we should really limit the amount um, of an individual contribution um, you know, uh, or corporate contributions um, to a state assembly candidate, because right now, like the max donation is 4,700, right? So for someone that's wealthy or has access to wealth, they can just get these large, large donations. Um, and so we need really need to limit, you know, the individual amount that someone can give so that it encourages candidates to really reach out to people, right? And get that grassroots support. Yeah, it's definitely nice to hear something uh, slightly optimistic because I, I have to say with like the 6-3 uh, Supreme Court yeah. conservative majority that is, you know, seemingly all but inevitable at this point, uh, it, it's definitely really easy to feel despondent and to feel like, wow, there's there's nothing that we can do about this consolidation of corporate power. But um, it's it's a very good and hopeful reminder that there are things that we can be doing at the state level, independent of the Supreme Court. Yeah, you know, I think, honestly, Kate, I think I think federal politics um, gets a lot of attention and not that it shouldn't. But um, there is a lot of power in local politics, a lot of things we can change in our state and our country. You know, we want to, I want to remind people it was founded that way, right? It was mm. a battle between state rights versus, uh, you know, federal federal rights right and and we came up with this balance and that's why i think as an immigrant i believe in this country like i believe we have uh we have the 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 makings of this great democracy right but it's just not happening right now because how much of it how much is bought out by special interests and and money but we have this beautiful balance of states rights so there's a lot we can do at the state level even if the federal government is going amok and not really representing the people which i think is something i find hope in too and which is why i really believe in local politics totally i think that people don't realize how much latitude state legislatures have mm -hmm. um and even you know you were talking about school board before school board is immensely impactful yes. on the local level and you know a lot of times those seats go there are seats that go vacant and on different mm. school boards, I used to work um, in state mun municipal government, and it's really sad because, like, again, those those seats have a lot of you have a lot of power um, and a lot of influence for for children uh, in your district. And again, the state state legislatures have, you know, a, a lot of times they make. A, choices about how voting works in your state and um, police oversight and like really important things like that. I am all for local politics. Mm -hmm. And I think that I think one of the biggest travesties of our electoral system is that people really do only pay attention to federal elections. 
um, because so much can be done at the local level. And there are so many incredible people like yourself running for office uh, who need who need support and who can win. Yes. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, and I think it's all just part of that system. Like, you know, that I'm so glad you guys are doing this because it's like making people aware of it. Because honestly, our our, you know, the the popular media, right, like is not going to showcase the story of how we can really change our communities and change our country. It's going to be, you know, people like podcasts like yours. It's going to be, um, you know, this independent kind of media stations that are going to really showcase this. Right. So I yeah, definitely so I believe in the power of yeah, I believe in the power of podcasting. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. Yep. If you ask me uh, who's who's We're changing the world, the real work. Yeah, right. it's podcasters. Yep. <laughs> so I I want to make sure that we get to your new deal for education because I know that you know you have been a teacher and you've thought about education and what needs to happen very deeply. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue. Yeah, thank you, Kate, for asking that. Yeah, I mean, you know. Teaching isn't necessarily the sexy progressive issue. Uh, education rather than the, se- the sexiest progressive issue people talk about, like, you know, the environment or housing and all those things are also so important. But I just believe education should be right up there. Right. Mm. Um, education should be this great equalizer. Um, and it's not and it's not talked about enough. Um, and so, yeah, I if, if folks go on my website, there is like, you know, it's the only policy I actually linked to like a Google doc, like it links to this 20 page Google doc, like, which I first that was like the first policy I wrote out. And it's, um, but it's something as a teacher, I'm so passionate about, I think it was like my first real in and community or like organizing in a deep level is when I worked in Watts and literally firsthand, like, you know, had to organize to get resources to my students uh, and, and came up against so many roadblocks. I mean, so there are like a couple, there's, there's, tr- there's a few truths about education, right, that we don't talk about enough. Like, one is that, you know, we might have passed Brown versus Board of Education, but our schools are still segregated by class and by race, right? It's not normal that I, it's it's not normal that I only taught low-income black and brown students, or Watts is, has become this community, right? This is due to redlining, which, you know, connects to the quality of the school. So that's something we need to address, right? That, like, it is not the great equalizer, because frankly, to go to a good school, you have to be able to afford a home in a neighborhood that has a good school. So that's the a big form of racism and classism that exists in our state, right? So, so one thing I talk about in my policy, I mean, I could talk about this for a long time, but I'll just kind of hit like key things that are really important. So my son has autism um, and thankfully my husband and I have private insurance, right? And that's, that's a privilege. And he's been able to get services since the time he was like a baby or a kid. Um, I don't see that same access available in low-income communities. So, you know, those in, uh, those babies, those children, you know, going to our state-funded pre-K is not fully funded, and there's a lack of resources. So I want to fully fund our pre-K. You know, when Bernie talks about universal pre-K, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in some places. It means that it's not fully funded. Yeah. That's why he always talks about high quality. We need to fully fund it because... You know, scientifically, the first five years of a child's life are so important. Like 85% of your brain, I believe, is growing during that time. And that's that's a huge chunk of development that we need to really focus on if we value our children in the next generation. Um, and then when it comes to like our middle school and our public high schools, like I really am against the privatization of schools, the charter school industry, the private school industry, because it is taking a lot of funding away from our public schools. So I want to talk about, you know, a way that we can eventually be in a system that only has public schools so that our funding is not taken away. And I want to then also inequitably redistribute funds because 
And this is going to cause a lot of uh, controversy when I say this, because, you know, right now it's like every school in the state is actually getting the same amount of money. But here's the issue. When you go to wealthier communities, um, there are these ed funds where you have wealthier parents or just parents that went to college that can donate to the schools. That's how they get these arts programs and all these cool learning programs, right? You go to a community like Watts, their parents, um, you know, I had a robotics team there that I started and, you know, it was hard for a student to even pay $30 to get, you know, a team jersey, right? And so these schools are just left with the minimal Title I funding, minimal state funding, Um which is a huge issue. So we have to talk about, we have to, we have to equitably fund, not equally, equitably fund our schools. Um, um, and then when we come to college, you know, I really want to fight for tuition free college. There's actually a number of states that have achieved this. Um, and we have to go beyond making community college free and, and really make our college, uh, public colleges tuition free. Um, we used to have this in California and now the tuition costs are just going up. And, like, honestly, when I think of education, the, the one, one thing I want to end on is this is good for our economy. Right now, my husband's an engineer. Right now, a lot of the jobs of our future are going to be in STEM, right? Like 80% of our jobs in the next decade. We don't, have, we don't have enough people in the workforce. Like there are these jobs that are going to be created with the Green New Deal, with a just transition in STEAM and science. But that takes a highly educated workforce. You know, honestly, educating our kids in the state will boost our economy. It's investing in our future, Right. And I think that's how we have to start thinking about this like a new deal, because it, it can drastically change our economy and it could lead to job creation, you know? And um, yeah, so. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've just, you know, it's, I think like the inequities in education, um, you know, have are are a long-standing issue certainly but uh it's just i think something that you know even more people are becoming conscious of with covid as you know it's it's kind of like starting to become this division where you know some people are still really having access to high quality education and some people just like cannot go to school anymore like they're just there's no school for them whatsoever i don't even mean in person i just mean that like in new york we have people that like you know they don't like some students just have no teachers for many days of the week because they're understaffed. And it's just, uh, it's really, as some would say, probably not you, a shit show, uh, which you're not going <laughs> to say because you're running for office. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm so glad that you talked about um, your, your education, mm -hmm. your new, your new deal mm -hmm. uh, for education, because uh, that's something that both Kate and I talk about all the time. And it's really it's just like a funding, it's a fundamental building block of, of mm. democracy. And um, I think we've all been pretty horrified by what the, the DOE has become um, under, under this administration. Um, but certainly it's didn't start under the Trump administration. It's been, you know, it's the continuation of a lot of really deleterious policies from mm -hmm. both Democrats and Republicans. Mm. And um, I think it's spot on that, you know, the lie that we're sold in this country is that education is the great equalizer mm -hmm. um, and absolutely should be. And I think that, you know, America has the, the ingredients to to make it the great equalizer. It's just the narrative of like rugged individualism is so incompatible with a robust social safety net mm -hmm. um, that it makes it, you know, kind of the luck of the draw where you're born. Yeah. Um, I went to public school 
and I was lucky enough to go to a great public school because of, of where I lived. Um, and I know that so many people don't have, uh, don't have that. And that makes me, that like makes me furious, uh, knowing that like, you know, even the town where I, where I grew up, my parents could never afford to live there today. They could never Mm. afford to move there today. And knowing that like kids like me who had like two working parents couldn't go to, couldn't get a great education like I did is so infuriating. Um, are there any, I know we've been talking a lot about, um, your campaign on a, on a local, more kind of nebulous level, but are, are there any kind of big changes that you would like to like big structural changes you would like to see, uh, at the federal level for education? Yeah. Yeah. I think, so one thing is I actually went with my students, you know, I had a robotics team, like I mentioned, and we, a lot of the, what we did was outreach actually, like, you know, we made these 120 pound robots, uh, which was great, but we also did like environmental outreach. And then we talked about education funding. So, you know, one thing that we did was we actually went to DC, we went to Trump's white house, we went to Congress. Um, two students went with me and we talked about, um, title four funding, especially. So, you know, okay. So, you know, there's, there's a bunch of funding that the federal government goes, but one thing that's really important to note, like as a caveat, like as I answer this, is that like over 95% of funding for education is actually at the state level, you know, which is really hopeful regardless of what you said of what happens there, you know, because a lot of people talk about title one funding, but that's, that's actually a really small percentage of what we can do at the state level. And right now at the state level, our per pupil student funding is one of the lowest in the country. Mm. And it's like, it directly like affects our schools. But anyway, so yeah, but at the federal level, what we can do is definitely, um, I want to talk about Title IV funding because it's a big issue in um, terms of my district and low-income communities. So there's there's one thing in like having good schools, right? And a typical school day. But I think what a lot of um, schools have and some schools don't is like these after-school programs and like extracurricular activities. And that's what like, t- the Title IV funding will help with. A lot of times, mm-hmm. so that's why we had in, uh, first gone there is to just advocate for more Title IV funding. Um, of course, in a Trump White House that didn't pass, he didn't sign mm-hmm. that. Um, it was, you know, um, appropriated for, but it didn't pass because, you know, they, they're really bad on education, public education. They more support privatizing education. Um, but that's something I really want to see more, I think, which is why we need to get Trump out of office, you know, as much as the party you know, doesn't resonate with a lot of people, um, at least the Democratic Party will support that, you know. Um, and so that's something I really would like to increase funding for that too. Because like things like my robotics program, for example, that I started um, was, you know, for, for example of this. So, you know, I, I was part of a, my robotics program was part of an organization called First Robotics, which is like this international group. Um, so there are robotics teams all over the country, actually all over the world, and, you know, my husband mentors this robotics team in El Segundo and, you know, their school, their parents can sometimes pay more money. This district can give more money. You know, for my team, I had to find all this private funding and the district gave me no money. And so this is the large inequity that we see. And there are other schools like mine, actually, um, in Compton and Was that had robotics teams that had to close it down because of funding. And so this is a huge issue. So I really support increasing that Title IV funding that will really support more after-school programs um, for our kids. What also happens, another issue that happens is when this money gets taken down to the school level or the school board level, is that 
the money that's supposed to be allocated for certain things gets lumped together. So this is why we don't sometimes see the right amount of services for our, um, you know, our emerging bilingual students, or we don't see as many services for our special needs students. Sometimes the funding is there, right? But it's getting lumped into like, oh, well, we need to use this funding for this or that. And so uh, there are kids that are left behind. There are programs that are left behind. And so that's something important as well. And, and that's something we could also do at the state level. You know, we could audit these districts and make sure the federal money they're getting is actually being spent in the right place. It's not happening right now because our politicians are more sometimes tied to their relationships with the local politicians than to the people. And so they don't perform these audits and hold school boards uh, accountable and, and city councils accountable. You don't say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, surprise, surprise. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I think the, you know, we talked about, we talked about job creation in terms of um, STEM jobs of the future and kind of Green New Deal jobs. And that's so great as well. But honestly, there are also many jobs to be had just because there's so much oversight lacking across the board Mm -hmm. in our country. Mm -hmm. There's like so many jobs could be created just to make sure dollars are supposed to be are going where they're supposed to be going and people are doing what they're supposed to be doing, Mm -hmm. which I mean, and you could. Uh, you know, uh, coming from today's today's news, uh, you could say uh, there could be a lot of jobs created in, in the IRS, but the Republican Party loves to uh, strip it of its its funding as well. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, that's also what austerity politics does is it kills jobs. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. that's like kind of that isn't a big I feel like that isn't a big enough talking point um, as a as a message, as kind of like a galvanizing message for, I mean, you know, the Democratic Party is, uh, never picks a good message, but that's one of them that they could pick is that all of these austerity measures kill jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm totally, I'm buying what you're selling. I love, Mm -hmm. I love your whole, your whole platform. I, and I love the focus on education because so much of, what happens in this country, as we were talking about before, that people only pay attention to federal politics, people like so many, so much of what happens in this country is viewed as top down. Mm -hmm. And it really is. It's not like that should be bottom up. And to me, like, that's where education comes in. And I'm, I would like, I would love to see an America with your vision of what education could be uh, in place. And I hope I hope that we get there someday in my lifetime. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'm not saying this to put America down, but I mean, if you look at like, you know, yeah, you can, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> but how we, how we compare, like, you know, you know, and this is not the kids fault, right? How we compare an educational outcomes. Of course. It's awful compared to that. And, and like, we have so much wealth in this country and honestly, California mm-hmm. has the most wealth as a state. We, even in the state, what should be creating the most intelligent, the most students, most ready, you know, for this, new workforce coming up, but we're not. And, you know, this is talked about a lot, you know, that, but it's because of our, the lack of our education system in providing what, you know, what we need to do our students. This is why a lot of um, our jobs, like Trump's talks about this, but it's why, like, you know, why we're um, having to go to other countries to actually recruit people for a lot of these engineering jobs, Mm -hmm. because we as a country are not producing, you know, enough scientists, enough mathematicians, enough computer engineers, 
And it's not the failure of our country. Our country is a beautiful mix of immigrants and, you know, everyone in it, right? And we can do this, but we are deserving Americans, honestly, in doing this. And we're not giving them a fair shot at these jobs. So, you know, Republicans like to talk about job creation while investing in public education, right? And post-secondary education is a great asset for job creation, which is crazy because from what I understand, they want to limit, like, you know, they don't encourage people going to college and all that, but it's like, well, this is going to create jobs. I mean, this is how we create a workforce in America, you know, made in America, right? I mean, we if we have uh, an edu highly educated workforce, like back in the day, you know, a high school degree was enough, right? Now, all the jobs in the future are going to require at least a college degree. And so this is going to boost our economy, right? So it's a no-brainer um, to invest more in our kids. Um, well, before mm-hmm. we go is there anything that we didn't ask you about that you want to make sure to tell our listeners i you know i think it was a good discussion i think maybe one thing that i wanted to share is like just some of the ways our our movement can be trailblazing and that you know california has the most muslims but i'd be the first muslim ever elected and the first south asian woman ever elected to the state legislature um and like over ever since its creation and then i'd also be the first immigrant to represent my district in a district that's mainly immigrants, the first woman to ever represent my district as well. Um, and I'm not saying that to make myself look good, but I just like, you know, it's more to say that look at the lack of diversity that we have in the state legislature, look at the lack of, you know, uh, of working class people we have there. And I think it's also important because it speaks to why we have certain policies, you know, it, when we mm. have people that look like us, that look like our communities um, in the beautiful, you know, diversity in California, like that's when we can get policies that really reflect us. Right. And so um, I hope that if I get elected, that's what I want to do. I want to make it so that we can have even more women up there, you know, even more immigrants and um, just more diversity, you know, uh, of folks up there. Um, yeah. And then maybe the last thing I'll, I'll just plug in my website. Um, so, you know, grassroots candidates, you know, we're dependent on people power in terms of our volunteers, in terms of our donations. So, you know, my website is um, FatimaForAssembly.com, um, F-A-T-I-M-A. So if you want to volunteer, we have our links on there. Um, if you want to donate, uh, we have our donate links on there too. But we, especially as we're getting to like, you know, I guess less than a week almost before Ballot Squad or about a week, um, it's really, really important right now to like support us in any way you can, you know, so please do. All right. Well, thank you so much. It has been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, and we wish you the best of luck. We hope that, uh, yeah, to, to our listeners out there, please consider getting involved with this awesome campaign. And, um, thank you again, Fatima. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway 
I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. Your this land, land. 